the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. It was extremely scary. I really thought I was going to die. He was very calm, extremely quiet. I come home and my apartment is trashed. I mean, there's cops everywhere. They have my brother sitting at a table. They're interrogating him. And my brother looks so scared. I've never seen him look this scared in his life. It's just a really crazy story. And it's crazy to think that you're that close to a monster and you kind of know it and nobody else sees it and you think you're crazy. And then when it comes out, it turns out you're not crazy. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. And you know what? We have so many different intros to our three different episodes that it's very hard for me to do the correct one. And I screwed up immediately. But you heard the only the good part of it. So yeah. hi, guys. Hey, everyone. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Thanks for being here. It's another Wednesday. Uh, before we get into today's episode, I, of course, have to remind everybody about our Patreon. If you haven't checked out Patreon yet and you're looking for more quality true crime content, we're giving you one extra episode, bonus episode of a true crime story every single week. And what else are we getting, Lex? Well, you're getting these amazing episodes that are probably suggested by you or other Patreonies. So we're covering the cases that you're asking for. That's sort of the new... Uh, expectation that we've set and we have not dropped the ball on it. So every case, it's one that one of you wants to hear. Also video content if you love seeing our pretty faces for killing time and uh, some other extras over there. So come join us in the First Year Underground. We love you so much over there. Definitely. All right. So I think that's enough of that. So let's turn on the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. The late, great literary icon and activist, Dr. Maya Angelou, had a wonderfully sage quote we all need to be reminded of. When someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. Learning something uncomfortable about someone's character through observing their behavior is sometimes unexpected. And if there's a power imbalance between two people, this complicates things further. If the more powerful party does something that crosses a serious boundary and compromises the safety of the other person involved, often there are no meaningful consequences for the wrongdoing. Because as a society, we don't want to believe the vulnerable and powerless. We either insist they're attention seekers with a wild imagination or are seeking to defame someone. Why do we do this, especially when we know that the vulnerable are more at risk of becoming victims of crime? The reality is that many people don't want to accept the ugly truth about some people in their circle. Because what does that say about us and our judgment about who we allow into our lives? Regardless, this happens constantly, and sometimes the consequences are catastrophic. So we begin today's case on September 14th of 2007. In the UK, 14-year-old Andrew Gostin caught a train to London from his home in South Yorkshire. And while his disappearance sparked one of the most high-profile missing person searches in the country, he was never seen again. It was also the 25th anniversary of the death of the screen icon Grace Kelly, also known as Princess Grace of Monaco. 
And at this time, the U.S. real estate market was really at its peak, but nobody really knew what was to come. Crank That by Soulja Boy and Stronger by Kanye West were peaking in the top music spots. And at the box office, the psychological thriller The Brave One, starring Jodie Foster, was the top-grossing film, followed by Christian Bale and Russell Crowe in the Western action flick 310 to Yuma. The setting for today's case is an easy one. Long Beach, California. Situated in Southern California in L.A. County, the city of around 456,000 people is located 25 miles south or so from the center of L.A. Officially incorporated as a city in 1897, Long Beach is built over an oil field. This was discovered underneath the city in the early 1920s and led to the area producing one-fifth of the country's oil supply in the coming decade. Being right on the coast, Long Beach played a key role during World War II in its capacity as a port city, and today is where you'll find the iconic ocean liner, the RMS Queen Mary, permanently docked. The city is also home to vibrant street art, the Aquarium of the Pacific, and events including the Long Beach Pride Festival and Sea Festival. They also have an amazing restoration hardware outlet there, if anyone's interested in that. Our first degree for today's case is named Arden, and Arden grew up in Long Beach with her family. My brother is the oldest, I'm the youngest, and we have a younger sister also. He's five years older than me, and I'm five years older than my younger sister. Me and my brother, we really were not, like, close at all because he was the only boy and he felt very left out. Growing up, we just had a really rough time. We had a pretty rough childhood. When Arden's older brother, who we're going to call Josh, was in his mid-teens, he was kicked out of his mom's house and went to live with his stepfather, who by this time had already split from their mom. Eventually, though, Josh returned to live with Arden and their mom. By this time, he'd made a new friend named David. My brother moved out when he was 16, and he went to live with our stepfather, who was my youngest sister's father, and that's when he met David. My brother moved back in when I was in high school, I want to say, in ninth grade, and David was his, like, really good friend, like, I would say, like, a best friend, and they got real tight, and he hung out with him all the time, and they had other tight friends in this group as well. He started spending the night at our house, hanging out all the time over at our house. So Arden was immediately creeped out by this guy. David was making these weird sexual advances, trying to touch Arden whenever they rode together in the back of the car and just being generally inappropriate, encroaching and gross. My first impression of him was he was creepy. His eyes are like really dark, like black almost. He seemed to have like a thing for me and that made me very uncomfortable because like I said, I'm five years younger than my brother and I'm not sure if he's older than my brother or not. Like I'd go with my mom to pick up my brother and David to bring them back to the house. He would always like try to put his hand near mine or on my leg and I'm like, my brother's right there in the front seat and I am not interested at all. Sometimes he would just have his finger like kind of in the middle of us, but like rubbing my thigh. And I would try to get uh, like away from him as much as possible. And I would like be pleading with my mom in the rearview mirror to see, like, just look at me. And it wouldn't work. And he just kind of just pretty much didn't talk to me in front of my brother because he knew it wouldn't fly. But like he would get up early in the morning when I was eating breakfast while my brother was still sleeping and like sit with me while I eat cereal, but not saying anything. And mind you, I'm like in ninth grade and they're they're out of high school, like they're adults. And he just wouldn't say anything. I would offer him breakfast. He would just kind of sit there with me. He was very, very creepy. 
So it was very, very hard for me, and I was very scared of him. And I think he was slowly doing things to test if I was going to say something to my brother. Like, it would be, like, slow, like, rubbing my thigh or, like, like just putting his hand on my leg in the car. And no one is seeing this, and that's what is so mind-boggling. Not only was David gross and predatory, but he also ran with a rough crowd outside of his friendship with Josh. He also had fear of David because David had a whole nother group of people that he hung out with that were known to, like, kill and do drugs and, like, just hardcore gangsters, I guess. My brother kind of just told me, like, you know, I don't know anything about this other group of people he hangs out with, but it's, like, bad and it's serious. And, you know, so I can't, like, get into it with David. And Josh had good reason to be wary based on what he knew of his friend. David was the kind of guy who had a propensity towards violence. I think there was a part of him that knew to not cross David because this other crew or gang or however you want to refer to them as, they were very rough people. They were known for, like, killing people. And countless times my brother saw David beat up homeless people for no reason. Like, just would be driving the car, and my brother's in the car with other friends, and he would park the car and get out and just beat up a homeless person and then get back in the car and drive away. And it's so unbelievable to me that, like, you would even continue to hang out with someone like that. But I think that there was a part of him that was like, well, I can't really stop being his friend. I think there was a part of him that just felt like he was in it for life or or something like that. Arden didn't know David very well. And while there's little information publicly available about his background, from what we've been able to find, it appears that the year after he was born, his mom got married to David's stepfather. David had an older sister, and once his mom married, his stepdad and two younger sisters also arrived. And at the time, he came into Arden's life. He was living at home with his family. His mom was involved in his life. I would say, if I had to guess, that his life probably wasn't the greatest. And I only say that because it sounds like him and my brother and, you know, their little friends, they kind of ran the streets, it sounds like. They didn't have a lot of supervision. It sounds like they got in their little trouble here and there. I feel that if David's upbringing was good and loving and kind and everything that a child needs, he wouldn't be beating up homeless people for fun, for shits and giggles. Nobody does that in their right mind. Arden and her brother Josh are extremely close now that they're adults, but this wasn't always the case. And I get this. I had a younger sister who I hated, and now I'm obsessed with her. Like, you're children, you're adversarial, all that sort of shit. That's what siblings do. That's what siblings do, right? So when they were younger, there was no closeness, especially between a boy and a girl. I think that's kind of common. Like, what do you have in, in common, right? So due to the surface level relationship they had at the time, and his close friendship with David, Arden didn't feel like she could talk to her brother about how uncomfortable David made her feel. Me and my brother, he was definitely someone that was unapproachable to me. When he moved back in and I was in high school, I was like scared to tell him anything. And I would have definitely not told him, hey, I think your friend likes me or has a crush on me or is coming on to me. I would never. So one day, Josh invited David and another friend over to the apartment complex where the family lived to all hang out. But something that was supposed to be chill and fun soon turned really ugly. And we're going to let Arden explain what happened. My brother had these two guys over at my house and I had my cousin over. 
his friends want to go swimming with me and my cousin. And I'm really close with this other friend, but I'm still very uncomfortable with this other guy. And my brother doesn't want to go down the pool. He's like, why don't you four go down to the pool? It's totally fine. My cousin's like, you know, are you okay with that? I'm like, yeah, I think so, because this other guy's going to be there and he won't let anything happen, you know? So we all go down and there becomes a point where I'm in the shallow end with David and my cousin and this other guy are in the deep end and they kind of like jump in and they're getting ready to come out up the ladder. And David goes to put his hand on my private and he does. And I like shove him away and I'm trying to get to the stairs to get out of the pool. And he grabs my leg and pulls me under the water and he's holding me down there and I can't get up. And my cousin sees what's happening and she's already out of the pool and she runs and jumps on his back and has her arms around his neck and is like pulling back. And then he lets me go and we just take off like we book it upstairs to tell my brother what happened. What made all of this more disturbing was that David was not like laughing or joking around. You know, when Arden told me the story, I was like, what was his demeanor like when he was doing this? It's not okay, no matter what it is. But I was trying to understand his frame of thought. Yeah, And she's like, no, he was deadpan, serious, not a smile on his face, terrifying. Like he was quiet, calm, determined, laser focused. He like a switch had flipped in him where he was like on a mission. And this seemed to come out of nowhere, which made it all the more terrifying. It was very, very strange because he was very calm and like extremely quiet. Even in the pool, he was not splashing around with us. We're all jumping in. We're all having a good time. The other guy that was there, he's acting like a brother to me, like he should, you know, not being inappropriate, just being super playful with me and my cousin. And David is just standing there in the shallow the whole time, super calm, not saying anything, not laughing, just standing there. I can't even remember how it ended up to where I was in the shallow end with him. He just like went for it, literally put his hand on my private and just went for it and not saying anything, no words, no smile, no nothing, just totally and completely calm and staring directly into my eyes while he did it. Arden was in a complete panic about being violated and attacked. So she ran upstairs and told her brother what happened. I really thought I was going to die. It was extremely scary. We all four end up getting up there, you know, and I'm already telling my brother what's happening. And he's like shocked. He doesn't know what to say. So he asked the other guy that was there, is this what you saw too? And he says, yeah, I don't know what David just did, but he was drowning your sister. And even when my brother was like, did you do this to my sister? He's just standing there. He's not really defending himself. He's not really denying it. I think he might have said, like, no, I didn't, really calmly and quietly, but not like, no, I didn't do this. Like, she's lying. He's lying. So he takes him downstairs and they talk and he makes him leave. And after that, he just kind of told me he wasn't sure what happened. And I was like, okay, I don't know how he couldn't believe me at this point. After the incident, David was no longer allowed at the apartment. I feel like he was kind of telling me, like, I can't stop being his friend. Like, you don't know who he hangs out with. Like, I can't just take him outside and beat him up for touching my little sister because you don't know what he'll do in retaliation. After that, he just kind of kept David away from me, away from our other sister. He still hung out with him, but just didn't let him sleep over, didn't let him hang out at our house anymore. So after that day, I didn't see him, luckily. I was thankful to never have him sleeping over at the house again. 
and to never just have to be around him. Then one day, in the late summer of 2007, Arden was having a normal day. She went to school, she went to her classes, then she headed home at the end of the day like she always did. But then, when she walked inside the door to her family apartment, she was stunned by what she saw and confronted with the last thing she ever expected. I came home from school in early high school, and there were police all over my apartment. My apartment was ransacked. There's cops everywhere. They have my brother sitting at a table. They're interrogating him. And I go in my room. Everything's a mess. They start yelling at me to stop where I'm at, don't touch anything, to sit down at the table. And my brother looks so scared. He's never looked this scared. Like, I've never seen him look this scared in his life. I instantly start crying. I was so terrified. I'm explaining to the cops that my little sister is going to be showing up anytime. What's going on? Are we in danger? And I'm yelling out all these questions. I'm telling them I should call my mom and they're telling me to just sit down and they can't explain to me anything right now. And my house is just so completely trashed. So why were the police doing this? What the hell had happened? Well, it turns out a murder had occurred. But who, why, and where? And to answer these questions, you know the drill. We gotta go back. In September of 2007, Arden got a sudden shock when police descended upon her apartment in the aftermath of a murder. Arden and her brother Josh, who was also home at the time, were both terrified. And Josh had no idea who had been killed or the specifics of why the police were even connecting him with this. But he did know that it had something to do with his friend David. I don't know if they even told him everything at that point because he seemed to not know like what happened. And all he knew was that David had done something really bad and that he was somehow like being blamed. Like David was saying he was involved. I still to this day don't even know what they were looking for in my house, but I know they didn't find it because when they left, they didn't take anything with them. So here's why the police were at Arden's place. At around 6 a.m. on the morning of September 14th, construction workers began arriving at the site of the Cottonwood Church not far away in Cypress, Orange County, where a multi-million dollar project was underway to expand the campus to 35 acres. And there they found the beaten and bloodied security guard from the previous night patrol, who was barely clinging to life. It was 52-year-old Michael Thomas Gary. So who would do this to Michael and why? Michael was born on October 1st, 1954 in Detroit, Michigan. He was the youngest of three brothers, and at around 1960, when Michael was six, the family moved across the country to Long Beach before settling in Westminster in Orange County in late 1963. Westminster is about a half-hour drive west of Long Beach, and at the time, Orange County was home to around a million people. Originally founded on the agrarian industry, citrus crops also flourished, hence the name. And in the 1950s, not long before Michael's family relocated, Orange County's population was booming. It became a bedroom community for those in SoCal working in manufacturing and aerospace. And in 1955, following the opening of Disneyland, the economy continued to thrive. And Michael was on the autism spectrum. And despite starting school later than the other kids his age, he was fascinated with learning everything there was to know about dinosaurs. While he didn't do particularly well at school in the traditional academic sense, Michael had an incredible talent for retaining facts and figures about things such as World War II, which was a topic he developed a great interest in as an adult. Following the death of his parents, Michael continued to live in the family home with his brother. 
He didn't work a lot, but was always busy taking welding and body shop courses and even taking acting classes. His other hobbies included horseback riding, photography, and he was a huge fan of the LA Rams football team. And his go-to place to eat out was Carl's Jr. Standing at six foot three inches tall, Michael qualified to join the tall club of Orange County. I didn't know this existed. Do you? What is that? (laughs) I don't know, but it sounds like something Jack would be interested in. I know. For real, I should have gone there when I was single. Seriously. So in this tall club of Orange County, we should Google this, Michael made lots of friends and enjoyed expanding his social network. But above all else, Michael was known for his gentleness, generosity, and honesty. He donated blood regularly and placed himself on the bone marrow registry and made cakes for bake sales. Like he's a do-gooder, this guy. And he always made time for his friends and his family, doing odd jobs whenever he could. And even though he wasn't often working and therefore not flush with a lot of money, if he found cash on the street, he always tried to find the owner or he handed it in to the police. Around 1998, 44-year-old Michael got a job as a security guard, and he really loved it. So he did that for a long time, which brings us forward, fast forward, to September of 2007 when he was working the night shift at the Cottonwood Church, which was under construction. It was Michael's job to walk around the perimeter of the construction site in a loss prevention capacity. So basically, he's making sure tools, equipment, bulldozers, things like that aren't being stolen from the site. Lumber, like people do this apparently. And how it worked is he had a computerized wand, which he had to tap on sensor buttons placed around the construction site on the perimeter, which proved and showed that he'd made his rounds, right? Because this thing is keeping track of him walking the, the perimeter and scouring all corners of this possible vulnerable site. And on the morning in question, this is when he was brutally beaten and left for dead, laying in the dirt in a pool of blood, only to be discovered by the site foreman who arrived for work that day. And once he was found, Michael was rushed to the hospital, but tragically, he died less than an hour later from his injuries. The cause of death was determined to be multiple blunt force injuries to the head consistent with being hit by a hard cylindrical object. So everybody wanted to know, who could possibly do something so vicious to this poor guy? Back at the site, the police could see someone had used an oxyclintine torch to open the steel door to the construction site's office. Valuable equipment was missing, including tripods, a builder's level, two rotor hammers, concrete drills, welding gloves, a laser level, and a small welding machine. But if this was simply a robbery which Michael had interrupted, why did the perpetrators feel the need to beat him to death? Michael's electronic wand and cell phone were missing, but records showed the last time he used the wand was on his rounds at 2.53 a.m., so police knew that he was attacked sometime after this. Detectives knew that being a construction site, Tools were an appealing target for thieves in terms of a quick and hefty resale value, but they knew they had to turn their minds to who had the motivation to commit the robbery, because that would be the thing that would lead them to their killer. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, 
that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Following the murder of 52-year-old Michael Gary at a construction site in Orange County, in terms of the physical evidence at the scene, two metal caps were found. So these caps in particular, they fit tanks that stored compression oxygen and acetylene gas, and they were placed in a spot where the construction foreman knew they hadn't been at the end of the previous day. So something had been tampered with is basically what they're intimating here. And when these caps were sent in for fingerprint analysis, they got really lucky because there was a match. In fact, the match came back to someone who'd previously worked at this construction site. Law enforcement soon learned that 19-year-old David Joseph Zimmer had been working on the site four months earlier back in May of 2007. It was highly unlikely that these prints were left over from David's time at the site four months ago because the gas tanks were returned to the supply company every couple of weeks to be refilled. But the clincher for police, which pointed directly to motive, was that David had been fired after only a week for poor performance. This church is a really big church and they had a lot of construction going on. And he was on the construction team and they had open projects going on. And David got fired from this job. He got fired from the company and he knew that there were a bunch of tools at this site that he can go and steal and then sell. He was angry. He was fired. So he wanted to get payback. Well, when he showed up to this site, he didn't expect them to have a security guard there because he had never been to the site at night is from my understanding. And there was a security guard, like guarding, making sure that no one stole the tools. Two days after the murder, police searched David's family's home. They also targeted his friends like Josh, Arden's brother, who mostly had no idea what had happened. My brother didn't find out until the cops showed up. He says he thought that David got in trouble and that he was told that David killed somebody and they were looking for the murder weapon. But I don't think that could be because the murder weapon was a pull at the scene and they knew that. So I'm not really sure what they were looking for, but it was incredibly scary. 
they were asking him all these questions about where he was on that night, if he was involved. And I'm putting little pieces together because I don't know what they're talking about. At this point, I know nothing. And they're asking my brother all these crazy questions, like where are the clothes he wore from that night? Was he there? Had he seen him? When's the last time he talked to him? I want to say that I heard like the full extent of what he did was from my brother's wife at the time. So she sat me down and was like, this is what he's being accused of. And she told me the whole story and like showed me an article. It was crazy because I kind of felt surprised. Like I was shocked by the cruelty of what he did, but it didn't really surprise me that he did it. We were all scared. This guy has been in our house. He's been around us. It was truly scary. In the interim, David reached out to Josh, who was having none of it. He had talked to my brother on the phone and told him that he had done something bad and he had to go. My brother's like, you need to turn yourself in. You're getting me in trouble. Like, I don't know what you did, but I'm getting caught up in this and I didn't do anything. You need to go confess. And he told my brother he was going to. And then instead, he takes off. He goes home, he packs the bag, gets his ID, his passport, and just takes off. David's family had rallied around him, with his mom and sister suggesting that they go to Mexico to seek legal advice for David from a family member who was a lawyer. But they could have done this from California, so to leave the country just looks shady as hell if David wanted to argue that he was innocent. I mean, fleeing the country never looks great. Not a good look. Nevertheless, six days after Michael's murder, on September 20th, David, his mom, and his sister did in fact drive down to Mexico, flying from Tijuana to Mexico City, where they stayed with a cousin. Eventually, David's mom and sister returned, but David ended up staying. Meanwhile, police were also speaking with another one of David's friends, and it turns out that David had actually confessed to them. And during this supposed confession, David revealed the name of another man that David alleged had committed the crime along with him. And that was a 26-year-old Long Beach resident named Sean Christopher Hodge. On October 3rd, police arrested Sean over his suspected involvement and issued an arrest warrant for David, who by now, as we know, had fled to Mexico. A week later, officers searching Sean's house found equipment matching the description of the stolen stuff from the construction site. And on that very same day, David turned himself in. Through a Long Beach attorney, David met someone at the airport in Mexico where he surrendered to police. In a second search of his family's home, investigators found correspondence addressed to David from Cottonwood Church, a blue duffel bag with a Mexican airport inspection sticker, a Spanish-English dictionary, and three Mexican airline ticket stubs. But the more incriminating evidence was in the form of internet searches performed at his aunt's house in Long Beach, not far from where David lived. So from September 16th to 19th, and from September 30th through the first week in October, someone had searched David's name, Orange County Sheriff warrants, and terms including, quote-unquote, guard killed, quote-unquote, Cottonwood Church, Orange County Jail, aid, suspect's family. So, obviously, David told his family what was up. Yeah. So, David and Sean were both charged with one felony count of murder with a special circumstance of committing it during a robbery. David pleaded not guilty and his bail was set to a million dollars while Sean was held without bail. If convicted on all counts, the men faced a maximum sentence of life without the possibility of parole. With David now implicated, he pointed the finger at his friends, including Arden's brother Josh, to try to mitigate the case against him. It was like David was offering prosecutors a bargaining chip by way of framing his friends who weren't involved at all. 
I believe he did that to, like, take all the blame off of him. Like, I'm not evil. I went there with a bunch of other people. They probably believed it because my brother, like I said, was his ride or die. Like, they were best friends. And so it wasn't hard to believe that David might have had, like, a getaway driver. He wanted my brother to say that he was the getaway driver and that he was there. They were thinking because of how ride and die my brother was with this guy that he was involved. Like, they were sure of it. He had his mom come and beg my brother's wife at the time for my brother to admit that he was there so that they would all get lesser sentences. My brother's wife was like, you're crazy. My my husband's not doing that. He wasn't there. He has an alibi. The mom was just, like, pleading, like, save my baby. Everyone should get punished, not just him. And we're like, you're crazy. This did not happen the way that he's saying it happened. Upon hearing all of this, our first degree Arden wasn't surprised by the fact that David had done something so heinous at all. And she was obviously so heartbroken for Michael's family. I was more shocked that everyone else was shocked kind of thing. Like, of course he did that. He beats homeless people up. He's evil. He tried to drown me. I told you guys. But like how he did it and who he did it to... That was the most heartbreaking thing that I've ever heard. There was no reason for it. By the time 21-year-old David Zimmer finally went to trial in October of 2009, the prosecution had a key witness in its arsenal. David's co-accused, Sean Hodge was now testifying against him as a part of the plea deal. At David's trial, the court heard that around 3 a.m. on the morning in question, he and Sean broke into the construction site that Michael was guarding to steal welding equipment. And while they were doing so, Michael approached the men and attempted to talk to them. He wasn't really being confrontational or aggressive. He just wanted to see what the men were doing. Again, it's 3 a.m. Sean engaged Michael in conversation as a distraction, while David hit Michael from behind with his fist and then a blunt object. With Michael unconscious, David and Sean loaded the stolen equipment into David's truck. But before they could make their escape, Michael regained consciousness. Fearing he'd later be identified, David attacked Michael again, beating him unconscious once more before the offenders fled the scene. They stashed the stolen equipment at Sean's house, and David shaved off his beard before heading to Mexico with his mom and sister six days later. David wasn't expecting him to be there, so he didn't have a mask on. He wasn't like hiding his identity at all. And he was so afraid this guy was going to be able to identify him since he worked at that company that he picked up whatever he saw and just started hitting him with it. And from what I remember, that was a big pull, like some kind of pipe. He just saw it lying there and picked it up and just took it out on this guy. And it was very sad. It wasn't like this guy could take him. And honestly, I don't even know how this guy would have identified him. This was a security guard working at night. David was convicted of one felony count of special circumstances, murder in the commission of a robbery and burglary, one felony count of second-degree robbery, and one felony count of second-degree commercial burglary. Seven months later, in early June 2010, the now 22-year-old David was finally sentenced, but not before Michael's brothers, John and Chris, delivered heartbreaking victim impact statements. His brother John described Michael as someone who enjoyed doing a good deed when he could. He was completely honest in all of his personal and professional dealings, even when his honesty hurt him. And Chris told the court, 
Private hands sentenced Michael to death and sentenced me to a lifetime without my best friend, confidant, and brother. Michael was repeatedly hit in the head, and for each blow that struck him, I received a blow to my heart. David received the maximum sentence of life without parole due to two special circumstances, as Michael's murder occurred during both a robbery and a burglary. And Arden personally felt this is way too lenient of a sentence. He got life in prison without the possibility of parole. I'm extremely happy he's in jail. I think he's exactly where he belongs. I think he probably should have gotten the death penalty. I think that what's unfortunate is he is the type that is probably living it up in jail. He probably has a whole new gang in there. He's probably having a great time. And I don't think he deserves that. I think he deserves to be in the ground because that's what he did. He treated other people like dirt. And he did not care about that guy's life. He never stopped to think about who he was taking away. Almost three months later, on August 27th, 29-year-old Sean Hodge was sentenced to 11 years in prison in return for his earlier guilty plea to one felony count of voluntary manslaughter. Now, if you can believe it, today, the 35-year-old David Zimmer actually has a social media profile. He describes himself by saying, I am a God-loving man, loving, caring, nurturing, responsible, clean and organized, respectful, soft-spoken, but outspoken, good listener, compassionate and passionate, and would love to have children with the right person someday. I work hard for what I want to need. Family means the world to me. And, you know, we all want to hope that every prisoner wants to find redemption, and we'd like to think that killers can be rehabilitated. But what's really interesting about David's Facebook profile is that he claims that he's only temporarily incarcerated. Right. That's the weird part. And according to his California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation record, though, as we know, David is in prison for life without parole. So how can two things be true at the same time? We haven't found any information about his specific circumstances, but right now in California, there's a renewed push for lifers without parole to be released through the governor granting a commutation. And according to Human Rights Watch, in the past 10 years, around 200 people serving life without parole in California have been released. And usually for those serving the sentence, commutations resulting in release are pretty rare. And for those of them that are eligible, the governor usually reduces their sentence to life with the possibility of parole. And when you consider that those 200 we mentioned represent only 4% of the prison population who were sentenced to life without parole in the last 10 years, it puts it into a pretty different perspective. Right. So this could be what David is referencing in his little social media dating profile. But anyways, of course, it's entirely possible that David has no chance of release and is simply trying to rewrite the narrative, delusional thinking, who knows, it could be anything. Or he's a blatant liar, which goes hand in hand with, you know, deviance. What we do know is that for all of David's claims that he's now found God and claims to be so reformed, this brings absolutely no comfort to Michael's family. Michael was robbed of the things that David was still able to go on and do, like furthering his education and maintaining a relationship with his own family. The whole experience was, I'm sure all of you can imagine, quite traumatizing for Arden, considering she was so young when all this went down. And it's left her with some sobering life lessons. What's sad is that I just don't trust men at all. Men that I should trust that I know won't hurt me. I still can't feel comfortable with them. If I'm walking down the street and there's a man coming up behind me, I'm scared. I won't go walking down the street by myself. I don't even go to stores by myself. It's just a really crazy story. And it's crazy to think that you're that close to a monster and you kind of know it and nobody else sees it and you think you're crazy. 
And then when it comes out, it turns out you're not crazy. If you're wondering where things are between Josh and David now, Arden told us that her brother completely cut ties with David once he was arrested. I think that it was all like a lot for him to deal with because once he got accused of murder, my brother never spoke to him again. He would try to call him from jail and all that, and my brother never took his call. So it was just like a cut-off relationship for him. I think there's a part of my brother, too, that just feels like so duped or like he never knew this guy. They were like best friends, as close as two guys could get, and he never knew him. And I think that's what shook him. He just had to mourn him and be angry with him all at the same time. Angry at him for naming him and getting him involved in this nonsense. Angry at him for what he did, but also like losing someone he called his brother, someone he called his best friend. What's clear from this tragic story is that David was a ticking time bomb. He was showing people who he was long before he killed Michael Gary. And it's pretty clear it was only a matter of time before something this catastrophic occurred. He was intent on doing whatever he wanted to whomever he wanted, and if someone got in his way, he had no compunction about impulsively inflicting senseless violence, pathological lying, or shifting the blame. David's only been in prison for 13 years, but if Michael were alive today, he'd be 69 years old, enjoying time with his family, and probably still living a quiet, peaceful life in Long Beach where he wasn't hurting anyone, only doing good deeds when he could. But sadly, he'll never get that chance, And we'll never know if there was a point where David could have been diverted from this dedicated path of violence and self-destruction, which in the end only resulted in him destroying his own, as well as many other lives. Well, a huge thank you to Arden for being our first degree guest for this episode. If you're listening and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon if you're looking for more true crime content and stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. That's right. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are court documents, the LA Times, the OC Register, the OC District Attorney's Office, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, OC Weekly, NBC News, and, and Violence Against Women International. And as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source. <laughs>